you know, the reason they, they like reading my stuff is that I've always got real-life examples to prove what I'm saying. There's a lot of good people that listen to this podcast. You know, other than God and my family, deer hunting would be next in line on my list of priorities. From the bottom of our hearts, it's it's just fantastic and awesome to uh, to have the support that you guys are getting. People ask me about expandable broadheads and love swings. <laughs> Chasing Giants with Don Higgins and Terry Peer. Brought to you by Osseo Camo, nature's most lethal camouflage. Follow along as Don and Terry discuss the techniques, strategies, and dedication needed to harvest one of God's most amazing creations, world-class whitetails. Well, welcome everyone to the Chasing Giants podcast brought to you by Osseo Gear. Don Higgins, Dr. Bronson Strickland, and the peripheral Terry Peer. That doesn't add much value. And we got the panel like this tonight. We are live in front of Masterclass Weekend number two. A couple weeks ago, we were in northern Ohio at a remote one. We had a great Masterclass here a couple days ago, and we have a great group that's going to be here tomorrow touring the farm and listening to a lot of high-tech redneck stuff from Dr. Strickland. <laughs> what do you think, Doc? Uh Happy to be here. All right. What do you think, Don? We got a good group tonight. Um, we do. I see a lot of states represented out there. We've got Ohio, um, Indiana, South Carolina, oh. um, Michigan. Um, who am I forgetting? Wisconsin? Wisconsin. Kentucky. Kentucky. Lots of states represented out there tonight, Terry. Yeah, good crowd here tonight. We had over 40 people in here the other night, and we did not record a live podcast, but we did a panel Mm -hmm. and answered questions for everybody there. But I think there was over 40 people in here um, Wednesday night, so... There's a lot more than there was is tonight. Yeah, for sure. there's uh, but but a fun group that we're going to have. We're going to talk and answer questions from everybody tonight. But before we start, you have some VIP guests in the room. So why don't you introduce all of our VIP guests, starting with your your pops? Yeah, my dad back here in the back row. <laughs> Got it. First took me deer hunting many years ago. Mr. Uh, Higgins, is that the first time you've ever gotten a round of applause in a room? <laughs> yeah uh we also have Dwayne hopkins from uh real world and right in front of him is janice and tim likens from real world janice is the glue that keeps it all together she's got her hands full i am Um, the stress that tries to rip the glue apart about every other day of the week (laughs) we got alan foster at the back Guy that taught me a lot about deer hunting years ago. We got Joe Johnson somewhere in here. He's he's back there, just mm. behind somebody. Um, the Joey Buck that I shot a couple of years ago, named after Joe. We got uh, Austin Razor, um, part of the board of directors for Lester's Feet. Steve Shields, the guy that uh, has a full time job making me look good on video. Am um, I missing anybody? My wife Robin. I can't forget her. <laughs> <laughs> um man i almost forgot the most important one of all well it's um i know dr strickland who uh you know he he works at the university and travels a lot um even outside of his podcast how many public speaking engagements you have to do in the in the state uh the support network that when people see us on a podcast or you on your podcast at for the for the deer lab they don't understand how much peripheral and people behind it and how much support we get from everybody to actually do these projects so it means a lot to have everybody here and i'm I'm sure you feel the same way about your 
So we're going to talk just a little bit. Uh, Dr. Strickland and I talked briefly about this last night. So while the, the group's kind of mellowing into their seats, trying to think of their questions, we had a conversation that I thought was really interesting last night at dinner. And I've been having this conversation on the consulting trail lately. And that's using trail cameras to identify bucks. And uh, I, I mentioned something to you last night, and, and we, I thought it would be a good dialogue for the podcast for not only you but Don to think about it. How many of the deer hunters that are running trail cameras out right now are using the trail cameras to identify a target buck that they're going after? Most of us, right? Most all. And, and one of the things I challenged a, a consulting client here recently is I said, I want you to change your mindset on trail cameras. I want you to f- identify the bucks that are on the do not shoot list. You know, as, as you're talking about the program tomorrow and genetics and uh, raising the glass ceiling or breaking through the glass ceiling, if you will, talk a little bit about, uh, before we get started here today, how can our mindset change with trail camera data to not only pick what buck we want to shoot? I mean, that's part of trail cameras, what they're doing, but also putting that list together that whoever's hunting that property, you're not pulling the trigger on that one. Yeah, and that's real, well, I shouldn't say it's real common. It's, it's becoming more common, at least in, in the South. Uh, we try to always put together a list of a hit list and a, a do not shoot list. And it's really just recognizing that all of these bucks behind us here started younger. And they were all two and a half or three and a half. And if you look at these bucks that all scored 200 or above, they were very attractive I mean, most people would have shot them when they were two and a half and three and a half. But it's recognizing those, that's the asset for your property. And those are most important to protect. So by all means, use it for your target bucks, those bucks that for whatever reason, uh, they're mature. It's a buck everyone's agreed to harvest. But more importantly for the future is ice or identifying all the bucks that have the potential to turn into a trophy. And that, that's really a game changer when right. you do that. And you can share that with everybody that's hunting on your property and guests and so forth. Don, I want you to pick apart a word that he just used because of how much consulting you do and how many farms you've been on and managing this property, and that's the word asset. You know, people spend a lot of money on their hunting hobby, if you will. My wife calls it a sickness. But, uh, you know... Using the term, a financial term, asset, Mm -hmm. we're all looking for a return. It could be enjoyment. It could be time with the family. It could be whatever. But when you really think of a three-year-old super potential superstar, is that your asset? Everybody wants to kill a big buck. And I like using that financial term as as that two- and three-year-old versus just say, do not shoot him, because that's that's really where our return is. Mm Mm-hmm. And, you know, the uh, in the real estate market, a lot of properties are priced based on the bucks that have been produced on that property. If you, if you look at these listings, you know, they've always got these trail camera pictures, and the bigger the buck, you know, it seems like the, the higher the asking price for that property. So uh, there's a real financial asset for having mature deer, quality deer on your property. Now, you don't let a lot of people loose on the farm here. But uh, especially when we deal with uh, properties we're, we're visiting or friends that we have that have maybe kids hunting, is, is identifying a do not shoot list. Everybody says they have a hard time telling a kid they can't shoot a buck. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of bucks we can shoot. Dr. Strickland's going to talk a lot about that tomorrow. Mm-hmm. But 
is, is it good practice for especially young people or beginning hunters to, to learn that there's ones that we just don't want to shoot? Because sometimes you'd say you'd better shoot a spike than one of your three-year-olds, right? How, how important is that play? Well, I, I don't think that uh, we should take kids to the woods and make them instant trophy hunters. I mean, we need to turn them loose and let them shoot some deer and, you know, encourage them to, to raise the bar with each deer they shoot. But, you know, I, I don't think it's right for an older hunter to take young kids to the woods and demand that you're going to shoot this one, you're not going to shoot that one, blah, blah, blah. Just, just turn them loose. I mean, that's what my dad did with me. We, we shot whatever the heck came by and was happy to do it. And uh, I, I think sometimes we get too caught up in the uh, chase for the, the big buck that uh, we, we forget about what's really important, and, and that's the relationship we have with, with each other, the people. Yeah, you talked a little bit about yesterday about doe days back in the day where you wanted back to shoot something else than a doe, but that's all you had. Yeah, and it, it, you know, d- different time, but uh, I had to show restraint, well, because of the law. But before I ever killed a deer and I'm seeing all these does, it was an opportunity for me to kill a deer. And I wanted to. I wanted to kill a deer so bad. But, you know, we, we were in the protection phase of the deer herd at that point. And, you know, I just couldn't shoot a doe. And I just had to learn that, you know, there's some deer you can kill and there's some you can't. And it just seems like, not always, but it seems like with a lot of... Uh, First-time hunters or young hunters, we just let them shoot anything they want. And, and then the next, well, and you say, well, okay, you can. All right, well, you can, you can kill one to get one under your belt. But, but how many years do, does that happen to where a youth can shoot anything they want? And so, like, I've been on some hunting clubs before where it's youth can kill anything. Well, I would say, well, you can do that one year or two years, but we can't go from age 9 to 16 and keep doing that because there's only a limited number of these high-quality younger bucks that are going to get harvested before you're, you're reducing the whole quality of the buck herd on your property. Yeah, I guess That's the, not a popular thing to yeah, say. Yeah, I, know, I guess but. the thing I struggle with is I'm, I'm about teaching woodsmanship, and, and you know, teaching kids to be trigger people is I'm, I'm 100% against that. I'm actually even really against these, what are they, eye scopes that you can put a weapon in a vice and then put your iPhone on it and then zoom in. It turns, it turns what you're doing into a video game for these kids. And I I think it's just the wrong message, but you know, I guess part of understanding the responsibility of hunting, I, I, I struggle with, I want my kid to understand your ultimate goal one day is to shoot a big buck. He has to understand the process of that. And there are going to be deer that we're not going to shoot on this. And I know what you're saying, Don, but I just, I think it's just as important to teach them the whole process. They need to learn to to hunt. They need to learn. We've talked about that hundreds of times on this podcast. And, you know, Al um, is in the back row back there. He talks about being a woodsmanship or being an outdoorsman versus just, you know, a a trigger pull or a killer. Um, You know, at least at some point you're going to have to make that transition to teach that kid. There's a responsibility. If we want to do this the right way, there's going to be ones that we can't shoot. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the big change that we've seen in recent years or last couple of decades is we've got these youth seasons that start early. I mean, I remember when a lot of states had a minimum age before you could hunt deer, big game. It was like 13 years old. And if you wanted to hunt and you was 10, well, you was hunting rabbits and squirrels and things like that. And yep. you eventually became a deer hunter. 
And today what I see is a lot of fathers taking their kids out, and I'm talking like five, six-year-old kids, little kids that don't even know what they're doing, putting them in an elevated blind, uh, sitting over a, a food plot or a bait pile, and all the kid is doing is sticking the gun out, and probably his dad's got his hand on the gun too, and and he's just a trigger man basically, like you say. And um, I think we've just gotten away from teaching the kids basic woodsmanship skills. You know, they start and they should graduate up to hunting deer. And at that point, I, I just don't think that we need to be dictating to those kids what they absolutely have to shoot and what they cannot shoot. Yeah. Is anybody from New York in here? Do we have an, anybody from New York? At one time, I thought New York, you couldn't even hunt out of a tree stand until you were like 16 or 18 or something like that. Does anybody know if that's true? I thought, some, I thought that was it. Anyway, I just thought it was an interesting dialogue. I think especially as property management, you know, we focus a lot of times on what's our shooters, but not what's our asset to what's the property. The asset, right? So we're going to take a quick break and listen to Osseo and uh, hopefully get a bunch of questions from our live audience that stumped Don for some free prizes tonight. So we'll be right back. Osseo Gear introduces a premium line of bow hunting gear that is unmatched, pairing nature's finest camouflage with the best technological innovations. Osseo Gear brings whitetail bow hunters the gear they need to be the best at their craft. The unique camouflage mimics the intricate feather pattern of North America's greatest predatorial creatures. Designed for invisibility, built for comfort, and engineered for function. Visit osseogear.com. That's A-S-I-O-Gear.com to start shopping. Osseo Gear, prepare to be invisible. All right, here's our first question of the night. Okay, when you're uh, creating a food plot system on a property, um, how do you decide between a perennial system versus annuals? Is that a question for me? Anybody. Um, okay, I'll answer it. Um, I want diversity. I want all of it. I want greens. I want grains. I want legumes, cereal grains, brassicas, fruit trees. I want as many different food sources as possible. A deer has the ability to balance his diet given the opportunity, and each one of those food sources is going to have a little bit different nutrient makeup, and uh, that, that's why diversity is key. So I would say all the above. How does how does the acreage of the plot play into that, Don? Because some of those products, you have to have more acreage. Is that why we try to get as much food as we can? Well, like Deadly Dozen, for example, there's 12 different plant species in that mix, and it could be planted in a small plot. Um, so diversity might be the mix of seeds, or it might be, uh, you know, different crops. You know, have grain on one side of the plot and and uh, something different on the other but side. But if you only have a half acre, you're not raising well, beans you're not going to do that, but... So. Yep. All right. Thank you. I, I would add in, I, I would also, I, I would want both uh, perennials and annuals. And I would also consider, and again, my bias for the South here, um, is that a, a great perennial is, is white clover. So, but even though it's perennial and it's going to come back year after year, if you take care of it, there are going to be times of the year where it is not producing so it can produce great in the fall and especially in the spring, but then you have the, the whole summer where it's alive or the roots are alive, but there's no above-ground production. So that is when I would have a summer annual to pair with it. And so I think blending both perennials and annuals is the way to go. Probably the person that's most educated to answer this question sitting in the back row, Dwayne Hopkins. You want to you chime in on this one, buddy? 
I think I think you might uh, be able to elaborate a little bit. Yeah, Doctor Strickland's right on on the clovers. We summer slump uh, when plants start to go dormant and we lose that attractiveness to growth. But, but clover's resilient. It's, it's where it'll c- come back in the fall if we don't abuse it too much uh, in the spring and summer. Uh, plant mortality. We're going to experience some of that every year. That's a, reason for the frost seeding every year it's a lot easier to fix it with a little bit of frost seed than it is the first of may for realizing you've got a problem yeah so, yeah so. but there's a lot of variables as far as what to plant based on deer numbers and acreage and everything like that but the more diversity we have in it the better right diversity is the key if, if you go to a buffet you don't go to a buffet with just one thing on it you know the, the more selection you've got the more choices the better the more cost but the better the buffet. So I think that uh, in, in Dr. Strickland's world, there's a lot of products down there that we would consider annuals that, are, that will th- survive in the southern states, great products. So I think when we look at perennials versus annuals, sometimes it's a geographical thing. So, uh, so I, I blend of both, I think, is key. So. All right. We thought we would ask the resident expert. We're going to switch the cordless mic because it's starting to cut out. So I'm going to mute just real quick. Turn that one off, Dwayne, and we'll pass the other one back there for our next question. All right, Don, this is a question for you. Uh, what, are, what lesson has your dad taught you in the hunting world that has really stuck with you throughout, throughout your life, I guess? Well, that's very easy. He, he taught me that whatever we're going to do, we're going to do it right or we're not going to do it. Um, I, I remember coming home as a kid, and uh, back in the day, it was hard to get gun tags in Illinois. Every county was limited on the number of gun tags, so you had to apply. And uh, there were some years you just weren't drawn for, for a tag, and you didn't get to hunt. Well, I went to school, and, and a couple guys at school, they had a great idea. So I thought, uh, you know, their dads and them, they were applying for tags and everybody's name in the family, their mom's name, their sister's name. Everybody was applying for tags, and then somebody would get drawn, and they'd get to go hunting. And I just thought that was the greatest idea I'd ever heard. And I came home with the supper table and told my dad this great idea. We're all going to apply for tags. And he let me know pretty quick that that wasn't going to happen at our house. So he made it really clear that whatever we're going to do, he'll help me with whatever I'm interested in, but we're going to do it right. Was he a hunter early in his life? Uh, he did some, but not not a whole lot. Yeah, my dad Basically didn't either. Small game. What about you, Doc? Was your was your family into hunting when you were growing up, or a, a, a little bit? But you got to keep in mind, my my parents, their generation, there there weren't any deer. There weren't deer. It, it was quail hunting and rabbit hunting, small game. That was Interesting. it. Not because they didn't want to; they just didn't exist. Gotcha. All right, we got another question. Uh, this is for Doctor Strickland, probably. Um, worms and parasites. What? What role do they play as far as stress on the herd? And is that something that we should be thinking about, or should we just stay out of that? That, That's a a good question. I I hope I have a satisfying answer. I think it really depends on a a free-ranging herd or a captive herd. And when you get to a captive herd, I I can't offer a lot of expertise with that. Parasites, for example, are going to fluctuate from individual to individual and sometimes from year to year, but it's typically a natural process, and we have never, that I'm aware of, have ever documented where that has really regulated a population 
It, typically, you might have a cycle, but it works itself out. And believe it or not, deer are pretty good at, at medicating themselves with the plants they eat. And for example, we hear a lot about, you know, red oaks are bad relative to white oaks because they have all those tannins in them. But tannins can actually be a good thing. And herbivores can use tannins for uh, controlling parasites in their body. So we actually have some indices in the wildlife biology where there are certain organs we can look at and have a relative count of parasites. And we can determine that usually if herd condition is really, really low, uh, meaning their body condition is poor, they're not as able to, to fight off or deal with parasites. And you can see parasite indices increase. But usually when you manage the herd and you manage the habitat, all that takes care of itself at a population level. So really not a concern for me. Okay. So this question is for Don. So in Ohio, uh, what's the challenge of uh, raising five-year-old deer? Uh, the challenge is the same as it is anywhere. That's getting people to quit shooting them when they're two, three, and four. <laughs> I, I don't have the answer, um, you, you know, to, for that challenge, but uh, that is the challenge, is getting people to quit shooting them. So if you're letting the two- or three-year-old go, it was go, three-year-olds go and the neighbor keeps shooting them, what's the best thing to do there? Uh, there's, there's two really good solutions for that. Number one is build a fence, and number two is sell the property and buy another one. <laughs> just, just being brutally honest. <laughs> Well, while we're waiting for the next question to come up here, um, I talked to Chris Yates today. We've gotten a lot of people ask about Chris's health, and we mentioned, uh, what was it, two podcasts ago that he was going in for uh, open-heart surgery for a quadruple bypass. And uh, he told me today he's getting out four times a day and walking with the dog. Good deal. He's doing really good. He's a little – says he's still pretty sore. Mm-hmm. But uh, he's uh, he's doing really well. He said that uh, – Believe it or not, he said his incision is so small. He said they can't believe they even did what they did. But uh, I guess I don't know if it was robotic surgery or what, but uh, he's got a really good team of doctors. So everybody's been asking about that. Continue to keep him in his pra- in your prayers. But uh, Chris did say thank you to everybody for the concern, but wanted me to make that announcement tonight. All right, we got our next question. Okay, Don, if you've got <clears throat> your your group, your herd is somewhat – uh, dominated by eight-point bucks and, you know, 16-inch spread and 12-inch tines, and I've heard you say that those are good bucks to shoot. Then you've also got a buck or two that's maybe four or five-inch tines and is 20 inches wide. Is there any chance that down the road those two genetic pools will come together and create the dream buck? Well, they probably already have come together, just to be brutally honest. And, you know, the crazy thing is is that right before we came out today, Dr. Strickland and I was uh, – recording a video on this very topic and I posed the question to him so I'm just going to pass on the, the question to him because I asked it to him earlier and I already heard the answer so I, I think that's a product of uh, nutrition and age structure as well as high grading in terms of the harvest that has taken place for years has been the, the better quality uh, the larger antlered bucks even though they're middle-aged, but they're above average, the nines and tens, et cetera, big eights, that they're systematically being removed from the population. So uh, on average, I can't say for Illinois, but in the South, about half of your mature bucks, 
40%, sometimes 50%, are going to be eight-pointers. That's, that's just a fact. You're only going to have uh, 30 20% are going to be 10-pointers. So it, to me, it sounds like either nutrition is limiting the, the antler expression or the best bucks are being harvested systematically on your property or around it. And, and what you're seeing is what's left over. I'm going to ask a follow-up question to you. Um, the word high grading, that term that's used in timber, livestock, whatever, How do, what's the term high grading? What do you mean when you're talking about the deer herd or hunters in the area? Explain that a little bit more for the listeners. Take the best and leave the rest. So from a, a forestry standpoint, it is a... Uh, logger, for example, going in and taking the highest quality timber, high value timber, out of a stand and leaving the low quality timber to grow up. And then you get 15, 20, 30 years down the road and you have your timber stand evaluated and you've got a lot of trees, but they're not the species or grade that's going to bring you a big check. And that's where the term, the stand has been high graded. And we contend that a buck population can be high graded in the same sense. Yeah, good good analogy to mm-hmm. using it as the compare it to the timber. All right. I got two questions. First, I'd like to thank you guys for the podcast you put on every week. I, I enjoy it. It's a highlight for the week, I guess. The first one is for Don. You were at my property some three years ago, and I got two of my neighbors sitting here, so maybe we should not ask this question, but I guess we're going to. I got the Savage Acres on the east side of me in my name now. Okay. Is there is there something I should do with the, it's a very young stand of timber in there, probably five or ten years before it's ready to harvest. Is there something I should do now, or do I need to wait till that's ready to harvest to get the value out of it? Uh, to be honest, I'd probably have to see it to give you a good answer. Uh, it might be that a timber stand improvement cut would would help that timber. Um, I don't know the species or the, the size of the trees that are, that are in there. I know right now white oaks are at an all-time high. Um, believe it or not, the demand at the moment is for uh, wh- staves for whiskey barrels, and they, they use white oak for that. So uh, the price of white oaks right now are at an all-time high, as I think walnuts are as well. But uh, without seeing that timber, it's really hard to, to give you advice on what to do with it. Second question is, we had, last year we had a couple bucks that shed that broke part of the skull out, like with the shed. Dr. Bronson Strickland might answer that question, but is that like a lack of minerals or something, or what makes that skull soft to allow that part of that skull to break out with the shed? Uh, A couple things could be going on. Uh, I I would say most likely the the skull or the cranium was probably weakened, maybe from, from fighting, you know, and there was some type of fracture right there that, that, that uh, caused that part of the skull to go with the pedicle, so forth, and come off. Um, I guess it's possible. It could be a mineral or nutrient limitation. I've, I've never seen that before. Usually those type of limitations just affect the antlers and not skull going with the shed antler. So um, my educated guess would be probably from an injury due to fighting. How does that affect antler growth the second year? Doomed. That that particular antler will never have the same shape again. Just because of the part of the skull plate being missing? 
yeah, you, you've essentially disrupted the foundation. You know, you've misshapen or broken the foundation, the pedicle, where that growth is going to take place. So it's going to, I'm not saying it's not going to have an ant. Well, first of all, you got to hope that the buck lives because part of its skull came off and the, you know, brain tissue could be exposed. So you got to hope there's not an infection that, that leads to a brain abscess and kills the buck. But secondarily, uh, if the buck lives, he's probably going to have a malformed antler on that side. Thank you. Sure. We haven't never really talked about that. That's an interesting topic. That mm-hmm. um, you, know, you basically have a deep open wound, a head wound. You sure do. So, um, and then the next year, who knows what? Lots of bucks die from what we call brain abscesses, and it varies a lot from region to region. But that you when can we really think about how violent these bucks are in the rut, sure. you know, the, the micro fractures and everything that would be around that pedicle at the base, That's right. there's a lot of pressure there. Mm-hmm. If it leads to infection, it's bad news. Um, for any of you gentlemen, uh, at home we have a, a problem with the deer leave once the crick freezes up. So is there anything we could be planting or any, I don't know, food plot-wise or anything in the timber or something we can do to help get those deer the moisture they need to survive in the winter? Because, say, it gets down to negative 10, the creek freezes up, those deer all move deep into the swamps or closer to town where they can get water more accessible. Is there anything we can do on our properties to keep water, I guess, in their food more than just a creek or a pond or something? There you go. I'm not used to dealing know. with 10 below zero, so I don't yeah. know. Uh, you're, well, dealing, either, you're used to dealing with drought, though. <laughs> I guess my biggest question is, are they leaving because of the lack of water, or are they leaving because of the lack of thermal cover and food? Plenty of, of good thermal cover and plenty of food? Well, in that case, I'm going to pass the question. <laughs> Um, so, so you think it is water that's drawing them? As soon as the creek freezes, they're gone. So you've stumped him out. too. You've stumped both yeah. of us. So, okay, to spin that, we, we talk about dew, snow, uh, moisture, other forms of moisture that a deer, how much are they getting through plant material or browse? To sustain it. I mean, you know, we talk water holes are on every third whiteboard YouTube video that comes out every week. (laughs) That made him laugh. But, you know, how much moisture can a deer get from just its normal dietary intake? Um, I don't have a figure to say they get 20% or whatever, but, but they get an adequate supply from plants at least during the growing season. Because, you know, the growing plant has to have a lot of moisture going into it. Now, that time of the year where they're primarily relying on browse, I would suspect the moisture content would, would be a lot less. Yeah. So I don't know if they're getting a lot from that. Interesting. Run a long extension cord to the creek and put a stock tank heater in it. <laughs> <laughs> if that's what it takes. <laughs> You had a stock tank heater out here, or not a heater, but a stock tank that, that you had deer drink out of before Absolutely. back in the day. Right outside the shed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hey, Spinks from Quiet Cat here in our virtual showroom space where you can connect with a product expert and learn all about our bikes, our accessories, and what makes Quiet Cat the leader in off road electric bikes. Schedule a live session today 
by clicking in the link below or going to quietcat.com slash meet. That was part of my question is I'd like to know how much water a whitetail needs per day. And does that change when they're in the rut or the summer months or winter months? I am going to have to say I need to look that up and tell you tomorrow. I, do, I, I had that in a physiology class 20 years ago. I can't remember the exact number. but Does the water intake change throughout the year? Because I know like after – We've had gone through calving season. We'll have, you know, a, a cow that just had a calf in the barn, and she'll suck down two five-gallon buckets like that. And as she's starting to lactate, does does the water intake change through the year based on what she's doing with fawns? I would suspect that it does. I, I just don't have a value. I would think it would be very you. similar to that, right? Yeah. I think the, the water – um, situation with with deer is really kind of overrated and i say that because i know a spot where there's a bachelor group every summer on this section and uh, they're there day after day you can drive by every evening and these bucks are out there day after day and there is not a water source on that entire section it's almost all ag fields with a couple of fence rows i've been all over that section with my atv there is not a water source there but those bucks in the summertime are there day after day after day. So they're getting it through the plants Absolutely. there. Absolutely. They, they have to be. I think the the need for water on a property is way overrated. And I'm not saying it's not important because that's part of the puzzle, but I don't think it's near as important as these guys that are putting their kiddie pools all over the woods and filling them up with the, you know, the little tanks on the back of their ATVs or whatever. Well, you said it yesterday, you're not against it as long as you don't have to go in to fill it. I think a lot of times the negative impact of the human intrusion to fill those tanks is a bigger negative than the positive of having that tank full of water. Interesting. So with your captive herd, what, what, how did you keep water out for them? How much did they consume? You know, the interesting thing about those captive deer when I had them is that I just watered them out of a regular stock tank. But when it would rain and there would be, like, mud puddles, they would rather drink that mud puddle water than they would the clean water in the tank. Now, how much they drank, I don't know. They, they obviously drank more in the summer than they did uh, in the winter. But uh, it wasn't significant, especially compared to cattle, which I've had most of my life. Uh, the cattle will, I, I think, pound per pound require way more water than deer do. When it comes to a whitetail's nutrition... You could put it in a pie graph based off what they consume or what they need to consume or like to consume versus natural browse or your ag fields. What percentages would those be? It, it would depend on what's available. So let's start with about thir- in, the, in the summertime when there's a lot of growing plants on the landscape. It's going to be about 30 to 40% browse and about 30 to 40% forbs. Now, if you're in an ag environment, it may be more than 50% forbs. But, but you will see a shift because of availability when you get into fall and winter. 
the, the diet becomes almost 50-60% browse, what little broadleaf plants are available, they readily consume, and then also mast, so acorns and things like that. So think of broadleaf plants, forbs, which may be naturally occurring or food plot or agriculture during the growing season, and you're probably going to see more browse consumption in the fall and winter. I got one more question. This is for Don. As the old saying goes, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. After your debate with Tony, was there anything that he said that has changed the way you've looked at things um, from a hunting perspective of chasing giants? Uh, no. <laughs> no. Sorry. <laughs> I can assure you one thing. Neither one of them are going to change any of their positions I, I, after that. I do want to say one thing, though. That, that same outfit that put on that debate um, contacted me about doing a debate with John Eberhardt. I told him I would do it. He declined. John Eberhardt declined the opportunity to debate me, even though he went on another podcast and bashed me and said, Tony just ran over me in that debate. He declined the opportunity to get on stage with me. Probably better in the long run, honestly. <laughs> better, better for him, for sure. I don't need that stress I was in my fired life. up for that one. <laughs> I don't need that stress in my life, so. <laughs> My question is for uh, Dr. Strickland. It's kind of a spinoff of uh, the antler and the skull deal. Um, a couple of buddies and I were recently shed hunting, and we have been uh, watching this good up-and-comer buck, and he held on to his antlers up until about three days ago, four days ago, and he dropped. Well, when we found the one side of the one antler at the base, you know, uh, where it goes into his head, it was a little deeper on one part, and there was kind of a yellow, gooey substance on it. Yeah. Is that a good sign? I guess assume it's not a good sign, and what are his chances of survival into next season, or how will that kind of affect his rack? So he, he had, from, from what you described, yeah, there, there was an infection, either uh, below the skin or even into the cranium. Um, so he had, he had an active infection, and that may have weakened the, the structure of the bone or the cranium. I would say, I'm sorry to say, that more than likely it's going to develop into a brain abscess. And I hope he makes it, but I, I would not be surprised if you do not see him this fall. Okay, thank you. Yeah, my apologies. <laughs> <laughs> If you do see him, let us know what his rack looks like. Yeah. How how lopsided it is. Okay, I have two questions. So my first question is um, related to when you're looking at your forest from a hardwood perspective, if you've got a combination of oaks, hickory, walnuts, beech nuts, is there any ratio between those species that you feel is better as you're trying to manage the forest? Yeah, for me, it's 100% white oaks. <laughs> I mean, the, the hickory nuts is not doing a whole lot for the deer. It's not doing anything for the deer, really. It's beech feeding nuts are awful. Yeah, beech trees are, are basically worthless. Walnuts have some value. So, But the, in, in my preference, I'd rather see more white oaks than anything. Okay, okay. And my but, next question has to do with if you're 
obviously trying to create more browse uh, for the deer. I mean, one of the things, obviously, is, you know, doing a timber stand improvement and that type of thing. Are there any, though, type of species of shrubs, whatever, that you would recommend that you would also plant uh, to, you know, sort of expedite getting the browse started? Well, in this region, I mean, I like hazelnuts, uh, dogwoods, gray dogwoods, silky dogwoods. Um, American plum is one that I like a lot. Um, Depending on the site, elderberry is another good one. Um, Shoot, I'd, I'd, th- those would be my top choices. There, there's probably a couple more. Is there uh, of those? I'm sorry, Doctor Strickland, but is there any of those species that do better when you're dealing with sort of a moist soil? Elder- not, not a wetland per se, but I mean, it tends to hold water. Elderberry would do very good there. Um, the silky dogwood would do really good there. That would be a couple. Just to follow up there, I think it depends on the scale at which you're trying to, to add browse. And so if, if you're looking at a, a treatment area of 20 acres, 30 acres, 50 acres, whatever, I, I think the browse is, well, I don't think it will. If a timber sand improvement or a clear cut, the browse is going to be there. And, and there, you're going to have a lot of diversity of it. You, you won't have it, you know, the next year. Uh, but you're going to have a lot of it uh, over time. But I would say if it's, if it's a smaller property and you're wanting something in the, the near future, next month, next year, then, then maybe planting something will help. But you got to plant a lot of browse to, to just make up a couple meals for a deer. So I think that you, know, you, can, you can augment it and help a little bit, but I would really rely on sunshine and the dirt to, to generate most of that. Thank you. I don't think the average deer hunter even understands the difference between tree species. Is it just me or I think a lot of people just have not dove into that or they don't feel comfortable to go in and even tell the difference. I mean, oaks, oaks get a little hairy depending on, you know, different varieties of them because they kind of look the same unless you see the leaves. But obviously a beech tree, most of them still have their leaves on it right now. They're easy to identify to go out and cut, cut down right now. Um, but is there a resource that either one of you could recommend to listeners on how we start identifying? I see these apps that come up every once in a while that identify them. What, what's some tools that somebody might use to identify tree species? Uh, the, the ones I use, there's uh, everybody that has Google on their phone. E- e- there's a little icon in the Google search bar that, that shows a camera, and it's called Google Lens. <clears throat> and when you use that, it's using AI through Google, and you would be surprised, or I'm surprised, how accurate it is for trees and plants. And then typically every single state, I know every state in the South does, with your forestry commission, they will produce a tree identification book. And usually it's either free, well, it's usually always free online, and the printed version's a few bucks, but I would get one of those and go to the field. And they usually have examples of the leaves, the bark, et cetera. So do you I'd agree with that, Don? Do you think most people know their trees? Uh, no. I've seen it with the... Uh the hinge cutting, which is one of the reasons I'm not a big fan of hinge cutting. You got guys out there cutting nice white oaks and just, you know, making a hinge cut on a six or an eight inch white oak. Um, most guys cannot tell a oak from a maple, let alone a white oak from a red oak. And 
you know, there, there's nothing wrong with that. You just need to educate yourself before you go out and you start hacking with the chainsaw. Right. Yep. Okay. My question is, how do you uh, t- keep track of your different bugs? Like, how do you, uh, from year to year? I, I use a software from Reconics called Buckview, and I arrange my pictures by camera location, and it automatically puts them in chronological order that they were taken as you save those pictures. So, um, you know, you get a picture of a buck at a certain location. You can go back and look at previous year's pictures from that same location and say, yeah, there he was last year, you know, comparing some antler characteristics, and then you go back the previous year. And uh, I've done that for multiple years. In fact, the Trump, the buck I shot in 17, um, he, he really exploded between six and seven years old. And I didn't even recognize him as the same deer. But once I went back and started looking at previous year's pictures, I noticed antler characteristics that were exactly the same. And then I went back, and then I went back the next year and the, the previous year and the previous year. And that's how I determined how old that buck was because I went clear back to where I'm like, yeah, he's two years old in this picture. You can tell yearlings and two-year-olds from pictures pretty well. And so I just basically backtracked through a series of pictures, and, and that's how I determined the age of that deer. So you don't really keep track of the different bucks, just the location? Um, if it's a special buck or, or has the potential to be a special buck, I keep track of it right here. Okay. I don't forget a good one. <laughs> Thank you. I started doing something two years ago that it's worked for me. I don't know that it works for everybody. But I save a directory on my hard drive based on the camera location. So say I have our home farm, that'll be in, but then a subdirectory will have rope scrape east or mineral lick back. So you start with a directory of the farm, a subdirectory of the camera location. And then once I get to the point that I can identify a buck year to year, I'll name him something. So then if I need to go and find all the pictures of that specific buck, you can open up your file explorer and search that name and it'll show every directory that he's in. So I can say in October, he was in this, this camera location. And then in December, he shifted to be here. Um, it's really important for me in Kentucky with bachelor groups in, in September because we're hunting in September um, so I have I have to keep track of that before the shift where most people are looking after the shift when hunting season opens. So by, by naming each directory from the farm, then the camera location, and then putting a name on the buck, I can just do a control F or a search for that name of that buck. And it'll actually, the search, the search function on File Explorer, Windows Explorer, will show me every single time that buck was in every directory down, and then I can see where he was at different times of the year. And usually I'll say the name of the buck and then the date. So in the file name, I can see where he was without even opening up the picture. But it's just something a buddy of mine showed me, and I started doing it about two years ago. It works really good. You got away? You're you're probably managing a lot of data. How are you guys doing it at Mississippi but State? Very similar to what you're talking about. We'll, we'll come up with some type of name for the buck, and we just create a directory for it. And typically every year we'll include the year in the file name for it. Mm-hmm. So we have that unique name. We can always search that, and then we can have in the file extension 
2011, 2012, 2013, etc. So you're sorting by the buck, but not the location. Then. Well, well, we can do both. <laughs> do and both, then you yeah. can also do a subdirectory for this is all of the sightings at this location yeah. and that location. I just like the the way to be able to do one search and then be able to type in the name of that buck. But the problem is, is you start saving bucks that you necessarily can't identify yet. You just have to keep them off to the side until you start getting to the point. Like Don won't name a buck until he starts hunting him. You know, so in in that case, he has to sort it somehow, basically. So, all right. Uh, I'd like to circle back around to the perennial annual question from a little earlier. Uh, I think we overlook the the perennials as an ease of management for us because it comes back every year. It's a product that we don't have to prep soil, um, seed make seed beds, and, and plant it every year. The other thing on these perennials, we're going to see that early season green up. So we've got early season food sources. If you're a turkey hunter, you're, going, you're bound to catch some uh, turkey activity uh, because of insect pressure on these, these young uh, perennials that are greening up in the spring. We tend to look at annuals as, as the diversity, and a lot of our annuals start to turn into the grain crops that we plant every year. That annual crop that gets planted and matures, the animal takes advantage of it all season long. So that becomes more of that annual piece, a little more labor, but a little more return from the protein and the attractiveness uh, during cold weather. And in between there somewhere, there's the, the winter annuals that we talk about that we gives us that late season chance to, or late summer chance to fix something that didn't go right in the spring. Uh, some will overwinter, some won't. So we will get some early green up in the spring on some, but we'll still get some active uh, feeding up into except well, zero degree weather on some of those winter annuals as well. So it's the diversity that Don and Terry talk about, and I think Dr. Strickland can see it, that uh, that brings the whole picture together on, on when we talk about food perennial versus annual. Hopefully that's a little better explanation than what I gave earlier. I think uh, real quick before the next question, Dr. Strickland, we've I don't know if it's come up in this master class, but maybe the last couple of years, you told a story about how you guys had this lush uh, food plot. I mean, it was perfect. looked like a the golf course of food plots, and you're watching deer, and they're overeating on some briar plant over. Talk a little bit about how the deer balances his diet, and he's always looking for what he needs when yeah. and and that story maybe talk a little bit about what I probably just botched and remember. No, that, that that's pretty good. Is um, well, a lot of people think food plots are important. But there's just no question about it. Um, but when you also pair that with habitat management, just meaning that the 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 foods that they like to eat, the naturally occurring forbs or broadleaf plants, is that they are going to. Uh, pair or match both of those and so I just remember unfortunately so many people now me included will be in a uh, will be in a stand you know when we're texting each other you know what are you doing and it was a buddy of mine and we had yeah wonderful food plots thus fall that that fall and a buddy of mine is like you know these food plots you you said are so great or terrible because this group of deer walked right through it took three bites and then they went over and started eating all these briars and stuff like that. But um, it, it just demonstrates that, that that is what deer eat. That's what they're supposed to eat as well. And we supplement with those food plots. So they're both very important. And it falls right back into what Don talks about all the time, not just food plot diversity, but bedding diversity. 
So, you know, people say, well, if I have all this switchgrass, I don't need woody, you know, wooded timber. I don't need wood stands for sanctuary, but you're also getting some nutrition out of that also. Mm -hmm. Don, anything to say? Nope. (laughs) (laughs) You covered it. (laughs) He's ready to move on. How about a question? I'm waiting for politics or religion to come We haven't had one all. We didn't even really have one the other night. I mean, you put Janice on the spot. She's got to pick a winner, and we ain't had a good one yet. we got to have some politics or something here. Um, this question's for Don. Um, when, it, when you're talking about uh, trying to funnel deer, you know, and channel them to come to where, to a specific location, that type of thing, what is your preference when it comes to uh, types of materials, I'm going to say, to do the funneling? So, you know, why, obviously you can do wire fence, um, natural type of vegetation brush you know cut drop some trees whatever do you have a specific preference and if you do does it change based on you know maybe the specific location or the terrain that you're trying to funnel a deer to it, it absolutely does change and it also changes by the distance uh, you're trying to funnel those deer so a, a longer distance there's no substitute for a wire fence um, if you try to, to pile up brush and things like that, they're eventually going to pick holes through it, and they're going to make a new trail where there wasn't one before. Um, but, but a wire fence, that's impossible. The thing you got to remember about a wire fence, though, it works perfect for a funnel, but wherever you end that funnel or end that fence, it, it's a funnel for both you and the, the property owner on the other side if that's on the property line. Now, there's a lot of... Uh, plans that I've done lately, people are just becoming more and more receptive to having fences around or on their property. And there's a lot of times where I can think of at least two plans that I did this winter where there was, we're using a fence in the middle of the property to kind of separate bedding cover on one side, food sources on the other. And we don't want those deer to have a dozen trails between the bedding and the food. So we'll stretch a fence partway across the middle of the property, and we will force those deer around one end of that fence as they move back and forth between bedding and food. Uh, so th- there's nothing better than a wire fence. And I'm not a- about to push wire fences on anyone. It's kind of a personal decision. But if you want to funnel deer, there's nothing better than a fence. Is there a particular height when you're dealing with that fence? Well, I think it needs to be at least six foot, um, six to eight foot. A minimum of six. But that's a way you get the deer out to where we can hunt them without putting intrusion on it. Exactly. Otherwise, if they have seven trails through the middle of a strip of, of woods and you try to get over there and hunt where buck sign is, you just blew everything out that you're going in to hunt. Yep. Don, it'd be a lot of work, but what do you think about treetops? So if you'd gone in and done a timber sand improvement, and again, the work moving them, but mm-hmm. it would be, and it'd be short term when they broke down and I just did that on my farm in the last week but I was only moving those deer about 20-25 yards and so I I used down trees I even cut some locust trees that needed to be removed anyway and used the skid loader and I piled them up to push those deer about 20 to 25 yards but when you try to do that for 100 yards they're going to pick a hole through it at some point. Wildlife farming is the leading e-commerce platform specializing in habitat management equipment Our mission is to make available the equipment necessary for the development of wildlife habitat and improve conservation for hunting and recreational property. We carry flagship brands like the Genesis Drill and Goliath Roller, as well as the premier brands in planting, mowing, spraying, 
forestry management, and fencing equipment. Food plot and habitat goals vary. Wildlife Farming is the company that can deliver the equipment to achieve these goals. Equipment is our specialty. Our staff is trained and familiar with all the tractor and skid steer brands to make sure you get the right piece of equipment to get the job done right the first time. At Wildlife Farming, we only sell quality equipment and we have the support and expertise you need. Please visit wildlifefarming.com for all of your equipment needs. So I don't know, this question will probably vary with a lot of different properties that you work with, but if you set up a property and they go with what you write up in the book form, they follow that plan according, how long, how many years do you think it will be for that property to reach its max potential or to maintain that, uh, what, you, what you wrote in the book form? Well, that varies by property. I've seen properties that was almost instant. If they would do everything that I outlined, the very next season their property would be cranking. I mean, now it's going to probably take some time for the the deer management part of that plan to really fall into place as far as, you know, let allowing some of those young bucks that they have on the farm today to mature to older age classes. But, you know, typically... I would say the average plan that I put out, you're probably looking at about a five-year period um, to get the, all the habitat improvements in place and, and then get the, the management of the deer herd and especially the bucks um, to where you can uh, regularly, you know, kill nice bucks or you're, you're going to get a good handle on what that property is capable of producing. And I'll throw in right now that I probably looked at it's probably pushing 500 properties that I've consulted on now. And I can tell you absolutely without a doubt that the clients that follow the plan the closest are the happiest. And I've had clients on every end of the spectrum. I've had them tell me that I'm absolutely nuts. This won't work. I'm not doing anything you said. And then I've had them say, I'm, I'm doing everything to the letter. And they call me and they want to follow that plan. And a lot of times it's multiple calls over two or three years they want to make sure they're doing everything exactly the way I laid it out. And those people, without question, are the most successful at killing mature deer down the road. Nothing frustrates me more than some guy saying that your plan won't work and he never even did the first step in the plan to try it. Thank you. Yep, you're welcome. We were on a property today, and I, as soon as I walked in the, in the shed here, I told Don, I said, this is reclaimed coal mine land. So it's going to take a little bit to get the soil back and get it. But when we talk about access, he is starting with a clean sheet of paper. And in that case, it's going to take him a few more years to see tangible results because we have to create some bedding. We have to build food sources. But I'm telling you, in four to five years, the farm I was on today, the guys listen to the podcast. So I know when they're listening, they're going to be they're going to be smiling this farm will be the best property that I've been on all year. And it's only, and it's solely because of access. He has a gravel road around the entire perimeter of his, of his farm that he can take heavy equipment on. And it's just a square blank slate with a wood line hundred yards wide down through the middle of it. I mean, you can't, you can't draw that up any better, but that property to speak to what Don said, it's going to different because since he's starting with that white sheet of paper, it's going to take a little bit longer to see the fruition than, you know, something that already has established bedding, established food, and we're just tweaking or teaching the person how to hunt. We get into that a lot too. You know, sometimes we're going in teaching people how to hunt more than we are, you know, 
doing something to the property. Okay. Don, I was just wondering if you uh, considered annexing any of your uh, 40 acres there to Ukraine to maybe get some of that $100, $100 billion uh, funding from the current administration well, or not? You know, I'm a big donor of the Democratic Party, and uh, I, I just feel that I'm due a check about any day now. So, um. I thought he'd be selling carbon credits. That's what, that's what I figured he'd be doing is selling yeah, carbon well, credits. We need to get this wrapped up because I got a meeting with Nancy Pelosi after the podcast. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my questions for any one of you whenever it comes to uh, feeding your deer um, we've got some local females that sell bags of deer feed that they kind of mix on their own and stuff is there a certain point when there's too much protein where it's just waste or, or certain minerals or whatever it could be um, is there a certain point where there's just too much um, it could be harmful to the deer or, or type Ask that well, question for him because this will be more than you bargained for with an answer. Type of protein, that's yeah, the other. Okay, yeah. Now, now so, I can answer it. Is there a certain type, I guess I should ask? Who's going to answer this, me or both, both of, of you? Us? Whoever. Well, a deer has the ability to balance his diet, and a lot of times if, you are feeding, or if you're supplemental feeding them with a high-protein diet, they're going to balance that out with woody brows or whatever. They're going to bring that protein level of their complete diet to, to whatever level it is they need and the same way with a lot of other nutrients they're not going to over consume any nutrient to the point that it makes them sick if they don't have to now if you're talking about captive deer where the only feed they've got available is the feed you're providing then you absolutely can you know um, provide them too much protein and I'll, I'll share a story from when I had the captive deer and th this is going back at least 30 years, um, but I've had livestock all my life. I had them in high school and showed in 4-H and FFA and that. And, and I thought I knew a good little bit about animal nutrition and from my livestock days. And I got these first captive deer, and uh, I tried to feed them like I was fattening up steers in, in a feedlot. Well, I, I don't think those deer had a, a, a solid pile of crap for about the first two years. It was nothing but the runs. Um, because of the the basically the rich feed that I was giving them, really high in protein, um, pouring the mineral in the feed, and that was all they had to eat. They, they was in a small pen where there was nothing else. So um, I learned pretty quick that uh, feeding a deer and, and feeding a cow is two different things. The other thing is that I really learned was the metabolism of a deer is way faster than it is a cow. Um, so when we would uh, give those captive deer um, a wormer, an anti-parasite, you know, to, to make sure they was free of parasites, we would have to do it three days in a row. Where with cattle, you would do it one day, but it, it would just pass through the deer's system so quick that if that parasite wasn't in a certain stage, you know, the, the uh, wormer wasn't effective on them and it really did no good. So you had to do it three days in a row to make sure you caught all those parasites in the, in the right stage to, to do a good job worming them. The other thing that really struck me about uh, feeding deer was the, how the, uh, the volume of the feed really changes throughout the year. In the fall, for example, if I had a pen of bucks, uh, there was one year in particular I can remember where I was feeding this pen of bucks, and every day in, in like September and early October, that particular pen was eating three five-gallon buckets of feed, and that, that was about what they would clean up in a day. Yet come December, 
that same group of bucks would not even clean up one bucket of feed a day. They was literally eating more than triple the amount of feed in the fall that they were in the winter. The idea that a lot of people think that the deer, after the rut, they recover and they, they, they regain a lot of their lost body weight in the wintertime right after the rut, I found that to be totally false as well. When they lose that weight during the rut, they do not regain that until the next spring and the next summer. And uh, maybe Dr. Strickland's going to tell me I'm nuts on some of this, but uh, that was my observations from those, having those captive deer for about 25 years. So I can completely agree. Uh, the deer knows what it needs, and so um, we use crude protein a lot, but it could be a lot of other nutrients and minerals. Um, if it reaches a, a level to where it's approaching a toxicity, they know when to back off and not to eat as much, and they know to go balance it with a browse or a forb that has different chemicals that are going to counteract the chemicals of the whether it be the supplemental feed or the food plot forage. So they understand how to, how to balance that very well. And yeah, what Don said is exactly true. They will restrict themselves. That's just over decades and decades and hundreds of years. Um, you know, we provide a lot of food through management that normally deer don't have access to. So we're providing these fall food, food plots, et cetera. But, you know, wild deer 100 years ago, 200 years ago, they adapted to a landscape of food scarcity in the fall and winter, except for acorns and things like that. So even in the deer pen, it's the same way at ours. Uh, you will see consumption, even though it's right there, all they want to eat. They voluntarily restrict their diet by about 50% of what they consume because their metabolism and their mind is focused on something completely different than feeding in, in the fall and winter. Okay. This question is for uh, Don and Terry both. Uh, which one of you two had a more emergency code browns this, uh, this year on their consulting trips? <laughs> on the consulting trips? Um, I'm, I don't think I, I had didn't any have one. You need to ask that question to Wes. It yeah. seems to happen. Yeah, I think Wes but wins he, that I one. thought about asking, but he wasn't here yeah. to, so to defend himself. The problem is, is Wes eats at that restaurant. What is that called? Naf Naf? Mm, or something like that. It's a it, weird is the, place. it is the most, it's like it's this disgusting. weird flour burrito full of just garbage. I've, I've never seen anything like He tried to make me eat there one time, and it, I'm like, it's no wonder you have such bad stomach problems with, with the stuff that you're eating. But before we go to the next question, and I, I wanted to, I was, I was teeing you up on that question with the type of protein. I want both of you to comment on this because this is a gimmick that is hitting the outdoor industry uh, in the feed really hard right now. Don and I saw it on a farm recently, and that's the use of animal byproduct to artificially inflate the protein level in feed. And I want you both to comment on this. We didn't prep this in any way, shape, or form, but um, this is a way that especially the feed that we see in big box stores that have high protein, but still at a low cost. They're not getting it through soybeans or, or protein substance. They're using animal byproduct in it. We're, we're all about educating seed tags here. So talk a little bit about why that's not a good idea and anything else you want to comment on, either one of you. I'll start real simply. I, th I think it's a bad idea to feed animal product to an herbivore. They're not designed to, to eat that. And so I think uh, whether it's a year down the road or 
50 years down the road, I think you do that, you're going to run into problems. Yeah. Actually, that's how mad cow disease started. They was feeding uh, basically byproducts from slaughterhouses to cattle, and mad cow disease is basically the same thing as CWD. It's just a different species, mm-hmm. and I agree 100%. We don't want to be feeding animal byproducts, and especially when there's so many better options that are really not that expensive. I mean, you got soybeans, whether it be roasted soybeans or soybean meal. You got alfalfa in whatever form you're feeding it um, that, that are both really high in protein. So, uh, yeah, we're, we're committed at Real World that we're going to be using the, the best products. We're going to have the best quality feed out there, and that's why we're looking at adding that Nutri-Crave corn to our complete feed next year. It's, it's higher in protein by at least one and a half times which is really going to cut down on the the amount of uh, soybeans that we've got to put in that feed, um, which is basically the most expensive ingredient is, is your fat and your protein sources in those complete feed rations. So when we go and we see a bag or we see a sticker and it says uh, 18% protein, 9% fat, um, it's not going to list one of the big bullet point letters as animal byproduct. Where where do we need to look at it? Give us a little bit of advice on what what are we looking for on that seed tag because it's usually somewhere down in the fine print. Well, just like with a seed product, you know, a seed product has got to have a, a an analysis tag. You know, that came back from a, a lab on germination rates, a purity, um, inert matter, things like that. Well, it's the same way with a feed product. It, it's got to list all the ingredients and they've got to be accurate. You know, there's state agencies that we report to. Janice sends reports in about, I think, once a month or once a quarter. And uh, these these state agencies will actually show up at retail outlets and sample our products. And then they will compare the, the sample that they pulled against what is is on our tag. Um, but usually the ingredients, which are have to be listed on the tag, usually they are listed in the order of... Uh, you know, the amount that's in there, the percentage, the so higher the first the per- one is the most. Exactly. Okay. Yep. So when we're looking at all that fine print, we're looking and if we see animal byproduct, I'm telling you for everybody listening to this podcast right now, that is the inert matter and seed coating of the feed industry mm-hmm. right now. All of these, all these products, we saw one a couple of weeks ago on a consulting client's property and we went and looked at it, and in big letters, it looked great. 18% protein, 9% fat, and we get down to that fine print, and it's, uh-oh. Yep. Turn around and go back. So um, just warning, make sure you're reading your tags. It's, it's, it's the gimmick of the, of the feed industry right now. Okay. My question is on CWD. Uh, it was two years ago, there was one that tested positive in our state, and uh, last year, that area they had earlier season with even rifle season in October. Is that something to be worried about or not? Good question. Um, <laughs> in my opinion, I think it is something to be concerned about but not worry about. And so it, it all depends on the spread of the disease and the prevalence rate of the disease. And once the, the prevalence rate, and this won't happen in a year or two, we're talking a decade or longer, but in, in places where the prevalence rate, meaning the percentage of the deer in the population that have the disease, it, it is going to affect the population dynamics of the herd, and the herd is going to get, it's going to reduce population density, 
and it's going to reduce the age structure. It's not going to cause deer to go extinct in the area. So keep hunting, keep managing, keep having fun, but just be aware that uh, if it spreads and you get a high prevalence rate, it, it is going to impact the deer herd. Okay. Another no, question. no, 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 not yet. <laughs> I knew this was coming. <laughs> not yet, because I want, I want Don to answer that one. <laughs> well, I'm not near as smart as Bronson here. I'm going to start with saying that. But I do think that CWD is a political disease, just like COVID. I think the government has made it out to be much worse than it really is. And the, the real bad thing is some of these... Um, the, the federal funding um, that these states get to fight CWD, um, I think they want some states want it to be a problem because then they can come up with a program to deal with it and, and get federal funding uh, in, in their pocket. Now, with that said, I, I want to say it again. My first statement was Bronson's a lot smarter than me. My last statement is Bronson is a lot smarter than me. <laughs> We know for a fact, Don was told, he, this wasn't secondhand, you can, you can tell the story if you want, when the supplemental feeding bill went, was trying to get passed in Illinois, you know, believe it or not, Real World and Analogics went together and tried to help this campaign and this, this bill to get passed, and it was completely shot down before it got anywhere, and the, the guy told Don... Well, we can't have this thing passed because all these sharpshooters that kill all these deer are going to lose their jobs. It, what bothers me is like here in, in Illinois, if a deer is found positive with CWD, the state comes in and for five years in a two-mile radius, th- these are exact figures, five years, two-mile radius of where that deer was found, they bring in sharpshooters and they try to kill every last deer in that two-mile radius. And yet at the same time, and then they do it for five years, then they leave, and then they go elsewhere. And at the same time, these people are telling us that this prion that causes CWD lives in the soil for a 1,000 years. So what did we do for five years? All we did was we spend a bunch of taxpayer money to, to fight something that we probably doesn't even fought anyway. Whatever's going to happen is going to happen. And Bronson is the smartest person I know. <laughs> and Don is one of the most outspoken person people that we know. Well, I, I can address a few things. Okay. <laughs> <clears throat> I've, I can, uh, I guarantee you that if the state of Mississippi had a choice for having CWD or not, but having CWD and, yeah, getting some federal funding to help manage and monitor the state of Mississippi, the wildlife officials would say, we don't want it. Really? Because absolutely. It has done nothing but stress uh, and, and overwork their personnel. It has taken fur bear biologists that want to be working with fur bears. Now mm. they're having to take CWD samples. I mean, it's caused people to, to leave the job to, to, to try to manage the disease. So, yeah, we, we do get a little bit of funding, but it is it is uh, it is nothing compared to the amount of work they're having to exert to manage the disease. And you know, when you look at um, and I understand, I I hear where you're coming from. 
When, when you look, though, at Illinois in my field, when we're talking about CWD, and we put up states that have done well, and I'm going to say doing well with managing the disease, because you're never going to eliminate it. Once it becomes mm-hmm. established, you got it. But keeping those prevalence rates lower is that when you look at the state to the, the north of you and to Illinois, y'all have been able to keep the prevalence rates very, very low through management versus just saying we're not going to do anything and the prevalence rates go up. The other part, Don, and others, in my opinion, what makes CWD so difficult, it's not a one-year disease, it's not a two-year disease, it's a two-decade disease. And the manifestation of the disease to where when you reach a 50% prevalence rate, it will affect your population dynamics. The, the number of adult does, instead of living to four or five or six years of age, they live to two or three years of age. And so the, the lifetime fawn recruitment that, that maintains the population is decreased. And, and it's taken a while now. But when we, was, when we were at our, our annual deer conference in Louisiana two weeks ago, we saw another case study from northwest Arkansas, where they've been going about 15 years or so. And, and when they found CWD there, it was already at like 10, 15% prevalence, and it's just gone up. But we, we do studies, and yeah, we, we do get some money to do some studies to monitor them. Um, but when you look at, we call them survival curves or mortality curves, when, when you mark a deer that is CWD is not detected, and then you mark a deer with a, with a GPS collar and a mortality signal where CWD is detected, 12 months later, only about 30% of the CWD positive deer are alive. 80% of the CWD negative deer are alive. So if you extended that out another 12 months, all of the deer that had CWD would be dead. So it... It's very, I hear it compared to EHD, and, and I understand it. They're both diseases. They both kill deer. But EHD is, is devastating. There, there's no doubt about it, especially up north, not so much in the south, but up north it can be devastating. But at least after a year or two, you're, you're finished with the disease cycle, and the population can rebound. Once you've had two or three decades of CWD in your population, it's, it's never going to recover in your lifetime. So it's just a completely different disease and a different management approach, and we're going to have to agree to disagree. <laughs> well, you know, one thing that makes it uh, confusing for a layman like myself is, is that you've got a situation like in Wisconsin where Dr. Kroll was hired to advise him on a CWD program, and his opinions probably follow closer to mine than yours. So when I see these PhDs disagreeing, it just makes it hard for me to, to buy Understand. in. Understand. And it's the government. It's you, got- know he's, you know he's already biased <laughs> when it's the government. <laughs> uh, wait till I tell Nancy about you. Okay. All right, what's your next question? Another question is, so it's election year next year. And uh, <laughs> if you'd have to pick between 
shooting mechanical broadheads so you could still hunt, vote for Joe Biden or vote for Tony LaPratt's plan? Which would you pick? I think that was for you. No, <laughs> sir. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, mechanical broadheads, Joe Biden, or Tony LaPratt's plan? What do I got to do with Tony LaPratt's plan? <laughs> Implement. Tony, turn my property into Tony LaPratt's. He didn't well, say you had to shoot something. He said hunt with it. He didn't say you had to actually shoot, shoot something. I, I would probably sit out of season, I think. <laughs> <laughs> we, got, we got asked a similar question in Ohio about that in – at, at the end of the day, all jokes aside, if if we had to give up this passion that we had for the betterment of this country, we're Americans first. And, you know, it's a funny question to ask and put him on the spot, but we were asked almost the same question, you know, about a month ago. And if if we could make this country a little bit better and be the, the, the people that we need to be as a society, I'd give up. I think all of us would give up shooting a deer. Mm-hmm. So the question is for both of you guys. Uh, There's three of us up here. I don't know who you're pointing at. <laughs> All three of us. <laughs> uh, so Tony preaches about doe baiting areas and buck baiting areas. What's your thoughts on that, Don? And um, I, I don't think the deer know the difference, so I don't know why we need to worry about it, basically. Um, I see it on my property all the time. They, they bed in the safest spot they can find. And, um, you know, there's there's a theory also, you know, that, by someone else, we won't mention names, that, that there's layers, you know, where the the bedding area closest to the food source, the does bed there, and then the bucks go farther back, and the young bucks are in between, and, and all this nonsense. Basically, a deer is going to bed where he feels the safest, and if it's right next to a doe, it's right next to a doe. That, that's been my experience. Agreed. <laughs> All right, this question's for Don. Um, so normally you're on that side of the table uh, as a panel, so I'm going to ask you to go on this side of the table, and the three people that are going to be up there that you need to ask at least one question to, and I'd like to know what the question would be, are your president, Joe Biden, your vice president, Kamala, and let's throw in Governor Newsom from California. Uh, my question would be, why do you hate this country? <laughs> I mean, it's pretty obvious by their actions they do. They're trying to destroy it. I mean, you, you can't do – these things can't happen by accident. I mean, they, they've got to be trying to destroy the country. So why? Why do you hate your country? If you two <laughs> could sit down, spin that question towards wildlife, habitat, deer hunting, if you all could sit down and have a conversation with any anybody about habitat, just to have a conversation, pick their brain, go back in time if they're gone. Who would who would right now would you like to sit across the table with and have both of you have a conversation with? That's very easy for me because I'm sitting right next to him. I mean, <laughs> I could reach out to anybody in the hunting industry and have them here at this master class probably. And uh, I reached out to the guy I respected the most. Uh, I've seen a lot of his research that falls right in line with what I've observed you know, on a non-scientific level, if you will. And uh, I, I just, every time I listen to him, you know, like yesterday when he was giving his presentation, I, I pick up on more. Just to, We was both in Kansas at an event, uh, what, a month or so ago, 
and uh, I listened to his presentation there, and it's the same presentation. I hear it over and over again, but it seems like each time I hear it, I But who would you reach else. out to that you can't reach out to is my point. Somebody that's passed away, somebody, if you could go back and pick the brain of anybody on, about on, this. On management or deer hunting? Either one. Oh. What are you thinking? What do you think, Doc? <clears throat> if I had to go back to the past, it might be a name y'all aren't familiar with. It'd be Aldo Leopold. And we consider him the father of wildlife management. He was the, the first person that really got people together and said, this is a science, and society needs to take wildlife management serious. And he started the first program, a uh, college program, I think, at the University of Wisconsin. I think I'd like to go back and just wrote some really great material that changed the dialogue, you know, 50-plus years ago about just the way people uh, – think about wildlife and how to manage it and how to be a steward of it. But I would be more interested if I could go into the future. I don't know who I would find, but I'd love to ask someone in the future where we went wrong. What were the things that we could correct and do differently now that had a real unfortunate impact in the future? I wish I knew that. Fred Bear, if I could go back and... uh, and uh, talk to a deer hunter, it'd be Fred Bear. That'd be cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I bet that's on a lot of people's list. Yep. All right. All right, so Dr. Strickland, this is kind of a spinoff question from the CWD we were just talking about. Now, if I understood you correctly, you mentioned the northern states manage the CWD a little better. Is that correct? I wouldn't say that. Not I, really. I think everyone's managing it more or less the same way. They have some different tactics in how they do it. But okay. well, What I was getting to is, do you think the harsher winters have anything to do with that effect? Uh, I, I think it can. Um, most recently, and literally at a conference I was just at, of several of the CWD-positive deer that were, were tracked froze to death. And so that, that was a new source of mortality that we're not used to seeing is freezing to death. But of that sample of deer, you know, there was a whole bunch of them that were marked that were CWD negative, meaning not detected. And those that were CWD positive, of all the ways that they died, that, that freezing to death during a cold snap was one of them. So I think that's just another one of those things that's going to cause greater mortality with CWD positive deer. Thank you. Sure. And then, Don, here's another question I have for you. When you go to lay out a property, would you suggest uh, strictly apple trees in one area, persimmons in another, or would you mix them throughout together in, in one particular spot? I like to group them by species for two reasons. One, to help with pollination. So you got a group of apple trees, they're cross-pollinating each other. The, the second reason is for... Uh, creating hunting patterns so when those apple trees are producing fruit dropping fruit you know the deer are going to be focused on that location and if you've got your pears planted somewhere else and the pears are dropping fruit well guess what during that window of time the deer are going to be at this location and i think grouping them by species just makes more huntable travel patterns and it definitely helps with pollination all right I think we're going to wrap it up. We're pushing in on an hour and a half. Yeah. Dr. Strickland, uh, it's been a while since you've been on a podcast. About a year. About a year. Mm-hmm. Um, 
anything that being around us has really brought light to you? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you've gotten to hang out with us a little bit now, and uh, what, what's any epiphanies about the idiots that are on Chasing Giants? I, I know really? some topics not to bring up. <laughs> At least while being recorded. <laughs> At least while being recorded. Stay away from that. Yeah. <laughs> well, we appreciate you being on the show tonight. Um, it's always a pleasure to have the this group of people that's going to be here at the class tomorrow is going to have their, uh, their head spinning with some of the topics that you both talk about. We're going to walk the property tomorrow. Hopefully a little bit better weather than we had a couple days ago. But, um, Don... Um, you got anything going before next week? Are you done with consulting? I got two local consulting jobs to do and then two classes next week. And then I got one trip where I'm flying to Ohio to look at some properties um, before the end of March. And after that, my schedule is clear. And I'm guessing that Janice is probably going to pile some stuff on my my schedule, like shipping Miscanthus every Monday. <laughs> Monday Miscanthus. It's uh it's it's a uh exhausting experience for the staff in the office, but they do a fabulous job taking Absolutely. care of that. We're very blessed for everybody that's on board there. Well, um we're gonna sign off tonight. Um make sure that you keep Chris Yates in your prayers. And I did notice one thing I wanted to tell everybody. The owner of Matthews, Matt McPherson, him and his wife actually released an album today. Really? Yeah, and uh, I th- I'm not sure if they wrote all the songs on it or not, but if you're interested in checking that out and enjoy gospel music, the owner of Matthew's Archery and his wife, uh, Matt and Sherry McPherson, if you go to their YouTube channel, that's where I saw it anyway, you might want to check that out if you have time. So with that, we're going to sign off and be back next week. Next week will also be a live podcast, and we got some special guest surprises for that episode so make sure you stay in again thank everybody for their support we appreciate it yep have a good week everybody god bless